Welcome to Season 6 of the Do More Good podcast, a selection of interviews with the movers and shakers from the third sector and beyond, telling the stories of people doing more good. I'm James, fundraiser at Blood Cancer UK, Marie Curie and now a Sue Ryder. I'm also treasurer of the events fundraising group of the CIOF and Bexley Cross Country Champion 1994. And I'm Kenneth, currently at London Marathon Events but formerly at Alzheimer's Research UK. Coveted New Media Age cover star from February 2007, Van Stanton Beer Pong finalist and co-host of the Do More Good podcast. You're listening to the Do More Good podcast. The Do More Good podcast. Uh, welcome to Do More Good podcast. Do more good. Do good, do more. Do more good podcast. Do more good podcast. That's what you want me to say. Yeah, you're okay. listening. You listening to the Do More Good podcast. Okay, here we are, James. Episode number 74 of the Do More Good podcast. How are you doing? Kenneth, I'm good. I'm good. We're on a bit of a roll. We've had some brilliant episodes recently. The numbers are all up. Everything's looking good. No pressure, obviously, today. Yeah, all, all very well. And you're on your holidays, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. Today was the first day of a, few, a week and a week and a half off. So, uh, yeah, went out to play golf this morning, which was very nice in the wind. Kids are off on Easter holidays, so that's been that's been fun. Nice. Better round this week than last. I'm slightly better round. Yeah. yeah, I'm still terrible. Good. I'm still terrible, <laughs> but I enjoy being out there and playing. So that's what it's oh, all about. Indeed, indeed. Well, actually, my subject for today. Which we'll come clear later. It's about performance. Anyway, so your golfing performance improving is good. I want to know about musical prowess, perhaps from your youth. Uh, Any tales of being on stage? Any performances? Uh, You know, that solo career, did it take off for you? You know what? We have been talking about it, haven't we? We do actually prepare for these podcasts now and we say, oh, what's going to be the theme today then? And so we thought... I try try and make it sound like I've just come up with the question. Exactly. (laughs) Here's what's on my mind. But we'll dive into it. Um, You know, a bit of singing in the choir, I think, when I was younger. We had a conversation with my team and, and, you know, like we do every, every... we catch up three times a week first thing in the morning kind of a check in with the team and see how it's going and and you get into the the most bizarre conversations right and last week for some reason we got into a conversation around Luther Vandross and one of my team chap called Zads was talking about how he loved Luther Vandross and he would sing him in the shower and then I've started for my weekly update using a product called Loom I think we've spoken about it which is a video messaging product and so I can't believe I'm about to do this, but I'm actually going to play you a bit of the video that I shared with them on the Friday after we'd been having this conversation. Now, this is going to be embarrassing, but, you know, if there's any, anyone there from a major record label who wants to get in touch, <laughs> I'm available. I can't fool myself, I don't know nobody else to ever love me. You- now, we better stop there because we haven't got, obviously, the rights to, to publish that. But I basically went on to sing the whole song by while reading on my phone and shared it as my weekly update with my team. Never lived it down. Absolutely atrocious. But, hey, it's all, about, love it. it's all about giving I, it a go. I absolutely. And obviously, please send me that. Can I have the link <laughs> no. to that, that loan afterwards? How are you? What about you? You must. I can, I can see you as a front man, maybe, of a, of a band. Well, actually, you know what? Like I can't top Luther Vandross. I mean, I mean that was that was impressive. And yeah, you've obviously done your prep for today. But we did used to tell girls in bars that we were part of a band, and we weren't kind of around Shoreditch and Hoxton and that way. We used to get we had the full. We used to carry around a CD that I'd printed with all of our pictures in it and stuff. And uh, yeah, God, that just went horribly wrong every single time. My friend Kimberly would always turn up and tell our audience that actually we weren't in a band and nothing nothing drops you from being quite cool to to then not being cool like the complete opposite end of the spectrum is when someone then why were you making up that you were in a band that's really yeah (laughs) dreadful but uh, yeah the only time I can recall of ever actually properly performing rather than pretending to was the school talent show lower sixth the girlfriends of the rugby squad approached me and said would you perform with us on stage for the talent show and I right. said, oh, I kind of blushed. Like I managed to you know, stutter some words. Yeah, I'll, I'll do that. Yeah, cool. So I had to go onto the stage halfway through the performance of It's Raining Men, dance with each one and then go off the other side of the stage and then come back on at the end and sort of pose with them and stuff. I mean, it was, it was dreadful. It was absolutely awful. But the, the entire rugby squad was sat in the front row. They were oh, just gosh. like glaring at me. And yeah, I had to be kind of escorted out through a back door so they didn't didn't bash me out. And there's video um, evidence, is there? There is there is video evidence, v- VHS video evidence of this. And unfortunately we did not get through to the second round. 
you know, there's always time. There's always time. <laughs> I'll share. I'll share you. I'll share mine with you if you share yours with, with me. So I'll um, have to. Yeah, I'll have to try and record it. I'll off have a, a little, off an old VHS. A little exchange. But anyway, let's get on. We've got a great show. A great guest who's joined us today. So um, we'll crack on and, and give the introduction. So our guest this week is passionate about bringing the transformative power of music to all. She was the first woman to win first prize in the eleventh international conducting competition. Guida Cantelli in Italy. She also won first prize at the Sir George Zolti International Conductors Competition in Germany, which had 437 applicants from 56 countries. She's an orchestral conductor and is currently the conductor in residence at the Savanga Symphony Orchestra, the inaugural female conductor in residence at the Welsh National Opera and principal conductor at the St. Wallace Sinfonia and regularly conducts concerts in the UK, Europe, Australasia and the USA. A Chinese-born New Zealander, I guess, is strongly committed to positive social change through music, conducting education, community and outreach projects and championing the diversity and inclusion. She explores musical scores through movement and dance and believes in the intuitive power of the body for self-expression and healing. And after hearing our guest give a talk recently on a philosophy for, for music and life, we were so blown away by her story and her general outlook that we just had to invite her on. So we're really pleased to welcome Tiani Lu to the Do More Good podcast. Hi, Tiani. How are Hello. you? Hello. Hi, Kenneth and James. Good to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Those, those awards were difficult enough to say, let alone yeah. to win. <laughs> Blimey. That was, that was a mouthful for you, well Kenneth. Done. That was hard work. Good yeah. job. Yeah, good bio. That one will be re-recorded before the actual show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's impressive stuff there. Impressive. Tiani, look, thank you so much for joining us. Before we jump into your to your story, and you know, there's there's so much we could delve into. There's been a lot said, obviously, over for those working in the arts. The last year has been really tough, been impacted, I think, more than it ever has been. How's life for you at the moment, and and how have your your role as a professional musician been affected? Well, I think globally, but especially in the UK, I think it's been an absolutely harrowing year. You know, I think mm. we're still very much in the middle of it. Um, I've had, you know, friends of mine who just haven't performed at all for a whole year. And that includes income, you know, just without any income and also a sense of worth. And your identity is so wrapped up in what you do. You know, mm. as a performer, you are sharing the stories, you're sharing your art um, and there are no audiences. And I think that has been a really big blow, not only, you know, financially and, but also, you know, mentally. So for me personally, yes, it's, it's been tough and I'm still up and down, but I've definitely built so much resilience this year and I, I don't regret anything. And in fact, there's been great moments that I've never done before in my life that I managed to face during the whole Corona crisis. Yeah, resilience certainly seems to be something that I know a few people are talking about, about actually what we've been through and coming out of the other side. Like, and I feel it myself. I feel a bit more resilient even for myself. And when you can feel it yourself, you know, and you, you hear other people talk about it. So that certainly makes sense. Absolutely. I think when you reach a brick wall, you know, when you have nowhere else to go, when you're feeling just totally at a loss, when you get cancellations again and again, you know, you're seeing your diary just emptying out. And seeing the, you know, your income just whittling away, it really forces you to consider things, you know, and reconsider things mm -hmm. that you've held for granted for a very long time. And I remember in March, uh, I was actually in Reading when this all happened. And the, the month before lockdown, I was actually performing in, I think, around four or five different cities every week, a different city. The USA, I was in Seattle. I was in, um, obviously, in Cardiff in the UK. And one week I was in Melbourne. I just went to Australia for one week wow. <laughs> to do a concert. You know, went straight from middle of winter to middle of summer, uh, 40 degrees. Yeah, it was just nuts. It was, it was an crazy schedule. And then it all just suddenly stopped every day in my pajamas and for, for a few weeks and trying to get out of the house. But feeling completely like a different person. You know, I spent 10 mm -hmm. years of my life since I was 19 trying to make this career, this very competitive, very difficult career. And suddenly it all stopped. Um, but I started meditating for the first time. I discovered a great app called Insight Timer and, and uh, a great teacher called Sarah Blondin who talks about self-compassion and self-love and just understanding your worth and understanding that your worth is not through doing but through being, that you are enough for who you are. 
And I think as a musician, you know, we spend our lives practicing, you know, for most classical musicians, you start when you're, you know, five or, or younger. Some people start younger and you practice hours and hours to perfect your instrument and you're performing at a very, very high level. And when that all comes crashing down, you know, you often lose your sense of identity and you have to find it again, separate from your work. And I think that for me, that this year has been so good to allow me to discover that I am so much more than what I do. And actually, ultimately, when I step on the podium, it's not what I only do on the podium, but everything that I am as a person that will enable others to shine. You know, and that's what I truly believe my job is as a conductor. Some people think I just wave my hands in front of the orchestra and I'm the one keeping everyone in line, keeping everyone in time. It's so much more than that. It's all about psychology and how do you bring the best out of people? How do you have compassion and love and you know, inspire them to want to bring something special in that moment of performance to move the audience and to potentially transform their lives. And that's, that's what I do. I think that's maybe where we went wrong with It's Raining Men, that I was kind of <laughs> meant to be the sort of conductor that was kind of pulling the glue that was pulling it together and allowing the ladies in the group to shine. And I think I maybe failed with that. But taking us back, you talked there about being five years old. So uh, take us right back there. Uh, was it obvious maybe you were kind of growing up in either it was either Shanghai or New Zealand at that time I presume and were you clearly a musical talent from a very young age were you the star of the of the the orchestra with your I definitely uh, thought I was I don't know if I was a prodigy <laughs> but oh my god like before I could learn to walk I was trying to dance before I could like speak properly I was trying to sing you know the only way my grandmother could get me up out of bed when I was a toddler was to play the you know sing the Chinese national anthem which literally is get up get up get up I just would perform all the time you know for all the relatives just all the stuff I saw on tv you know Chinese MTV equivalent you know and when I was five I I moved to New Zealand with my family from you know we moved from Shanghai immigrant parents not much money what do they do? Got to educate our kids, got to give them a well-rounded education. So I started learning the piano and absolutely hated it. <laughs> like I hated practicing. You know, I love music. I loved performing, but um, but the kind of nitty gritty of performing is, is um, challenging, you know, practicing <laughs> yeah. for any five-year-old. But I managed to stick it through, got through a couple of t- challenging teachers who actually slapped my hand and, you know, believed in corporal punishment until... Wow. Yeah, it was quite tough because I think the old school style um, in China, maybe in Russia as well, you know, corporal punishment isn't a bad thing. Like she, she used to grab my hand and be like, relax. And, uh, you know, that will help. That will help you relax. Yeah, no, totally. (laughs) But I think in those days, it was all about that kind of discipline. And I think luckily I quit like three or four times. And then finally my mom found me this lovely Kiwi teacher and I, she gave me stickers and positive encouragement and like stamps. And of course, then I did all my grades with her and ended up going to university in, in New Zealand and studying composition because I wanted to be a film composer. I wanted to like write for the movies, you know, Star Wars, Disney. And that's how I got into conducting was writing my own music and somebody's got to put it together. Somebody's got to wave the hands. So that's how I got into it. Wow. And then you ended up coming over to, to Wales and doing a, was it a PhD over in Wales at the University of It was a Masters, Masters um, of Orchestral Conducting at the Royal Wash College of Music and Drama. Yeah. Why, why Wales? Out of interest. Great question, actually. <laughs> no, there's, like, there's a lot of places you could have gone. And, you know, no offence to any of the Welsh people who are listening. You know, Wales is a beautiful country, but it's New Zealand, Wales. Yeah, I, I yeah, know where well, I'd be going. It's a long trip. I still remember when I was, uh, I think I was 20, 21, I was about to graduate my bachelor and I was trying to figure out where to study. And there was, you know, usually New Zealanders go overseas and do the big OE, overseas Mm. experience, you know, get some more experience either in the States or in Europe. And I think I was tossing up between like Berlin, five different cities in the States, Finland, and for all the different academies in the UK. And a lot of people actually go trade, uh, you know, do their postgrad in the UK from New Zealand. Um, and so I applied to all the schools and Wales was the one that actually accepted me without having to audition in person. They just I sent through a video and the teacher there just saw something. I don't know what it was because I was terrible, you know, <laughs> but he saw a potential and he took me on and they gave me a little scholarship. And I, I had never heard of Wales, you know, but I thought, you know what? It's much cheaper than London. It's close mm-hmm. to London. I can you go to London for master classes, can base myself there and go to master classes. So I ended up being in Cardiff was it was like being a big fish in a 
small pond, you know, you got more opportunities there. And it was just a great conservatoire. And I got along so well with my teacher, David Jones. And actually, you know what? When I ended up going to Wales, I was so surprised. I was like, there's so many similarities to New Zealand, you know? We have, you know, <laughs> rods a sheet, it yeah. rains all the time, and everyone's crazy about rugby. Like, <laughs> 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 I thought New Zealand was like pretty much the only country that was as obsessed, but no, the Welshman, man, oh, yeah. goodness. <laughs> yeah. You say that you managed to get in and then you, then you dropped in the fact that they gave you a scholarship. So that's, is, that's getting yeah, in on a, and a half, isn't it? I mean, obviously you were clearly, you were clearly talented at that, you know, and they I saw don't know. That. Somebody saw something, you know, I just think so many times in your, this is what I think about a lot is um, especially in the arts, it's such a subjective thing, right? It's not like sports you can measure, you know, most sports, you can say, okay, this person's running the fastest or, or even something like maths or engineering where you can, you know, you can basically see if you got a question right or wrong. Music is something so subjective and so much of it is dependent on self-esteem and what you believe. And if a teacher believes in you, you can go so far. But if you don't believe in yourself, the, your potential to perform is, is much lower. So I think it's, it's a really, it's so much of it is psychology. I spent a lot of time, you know, while I was studying, trying to overcome these, a lot of self-doubt. And uh, this is something I try and do when I'm on the podium now is to try and provide an environment where all the musicians feel freedom, you know, freedom to make mistakes, freedom to fail. You know, especially I think in the classical music world, we're not taught to fail. We're not Mm. taught to, we're allowed to make mistakes. You know, we have to nail every single note and be like perfectly in pitch and all that stuff. And it's exhausting and it's not sustainable and it can lead to injury and mental health issues as well. So, you know, I'm a real advocate for giving space, striving for the best, but letting go of perfectionism. And that's when we can actually perform to our best. And when did conducting become that that focus for you? Or, or was it at that point? We Did you always have your eyes on saying, right, that's that's where I want to be. I want to be stood at the front of an orchestra of some of the biggest orchestras or most well-known orchestras in the world. Was that, was that your goal from an early age or? Absolutely not. You know, I never, well, actually the thought never even crossed my mind. You know, even when I was composing, I was writing music. My high school teacher said, why don't you conduct this? You wrote it. And I'm like, well, how do you conduct? He said, well, just, you know, like this wave. I remember that. I remember that at school. We did the one, two, three, four. And you know, if it's in three, it's a triangle and all that stuff. But even then, I I really enjoyed it. I had a little go at it, you know, conducted my high school orchestra, but I never thought about it as a career. And I think the the main reason was because I never saw a female professional orchestral conductor. And so the the possibility didn't even cross my mind. It wasn't like anyone said to me, you can't do it. But it was like, I just couldn't imagine doing it because, you know, they say what you can't see, you can't be. Um, And it wasn't until this German conductor who was a professional conductor who was of the local Auckland Philharmonia Orchestra said to me, oh, wow, you have something. I'll give you free private lessons. And that was how it all all started. And then I think the realization of this is for me is that when I stepped onto the podium and I conducted, I just felt like fish in water. I felt so connected with the musicians and also my, my body, I always had this very physical relationship with sound. You know, whenever I heard sound, I had to move, I had to dance. Sometimes I learned scores through dancing, you know, learning a Beethoven symphony. I would go out to the beach and dance to it. And my body would teach me something that my mind might not about the music, about the direction or about the energy or about the character or the emotions. So, yeah, it was just, I think it was a natural fit. And the, but the best part is, is working with a group of people and bringing out the best in them and seeing the joy in their faces when they achieve something that is greater than the sum of its parts. Yeah, I bet you're, you're I imagine you're a better dancer than, than Kenneth and I have been on various dance floors. We should go dancing. <laughs> we should. Right, we should so do that now. Go. I've got the sound sharing on. Okay, this is something that we haven't rehearsed, but no, unfortunately. You mentioned it there about how you've written music. And then conducting it is kind of that next stage. You've still got that control over something that you've, because if, if you write it, it's your thing. It's like writing a story and you can imagine the characters and you can kind of see the, you know, the backgrounds to each shot or something if it was being turned into mm. a movie. It's a similar sort of thing, I'd imagine, that you have a vision of what it what it should be. And therefore, by conducting, you can realise that better than, than letting somebody else take that on and and crafting it in their own way or interpreting it in yeah their own I way. suppose so it's a, it's a level of control but actually you know a lot of composers were 
you know, they tried conducting and actually they weren't that great. So um, they ended up, you know, asking other people to help them conduct it because conducting is a completely different skill set. You know, you really, even the physical movement, you, it took me, you know, a good seven years to train myself to be clear. And even then, you know, now it's, it's not really about being clear. It's actually so much more. It's about how do you shape the sound, you know, because I think the biggest difference perhaps between pop music or, you know, traditional kind of uh, compared to the classical symphony orchestra is that a lot of the music that we conduct is not a set tempo. So that means, for example, you know, you've got a pop song, you've got a drummer, you've got a rhythm and bass section, and then everyone listens to that and you're pretty much set. But with a, with a symphony, for example, Mahler, every beat changes tempo. Every beat slows down, speeds up. Every moment, especially in the romantic symphonies, life is not a steady tempo. You know, our heart rate increases when we're excited. And so, for example, recently conducted Tchaikovsky's Romeo and Juliet Overture, and it's all about the two lovers. And you can hear the sword fights and it's like, you know, the stabbing. And, and you can hear the moment where they first fall in love and the harps are going. And then, now, if you just played it like, it has no romance whatsoever. So you have to like pull it back just at the moment or you have to speed it up here because it's like really passionate. And that is what creates the magic. And that is really up to the conductor. And you have to build a trust with the orchestra because when you don't have a steady beat, the orchestra has to obviously look at you, but they, they have to listen to each other as well. And when you've got, then you've got space involved. We're often big orchestra, you'd be, you know, at least five, potentially even 10 meters away from the person at the back sound takes time to travel. So you've got a bit of a delay. And so the conductor also has to be in charge of making sure that everyone, the sound reaches the audience in the right time. And this year with Corona, I've conducted a couple of socially distanced orchestras and I can tell you it's challenging. <laughs> it's a bizarre situation where I remembered it was in Germany and like the, the whole woodwind section, all the flutes and the horns were about half a second behind the strings. And I had to like conduct the second beat super early to make sure they were on time and they were still delayed. Wow. It's, uh, it's challenging. Yeah, I bet it is. I want to just go back to something I think you mentioned, Tiani, about coming up in what is a predominantly male-dominated field. I recall you quoted it was 97% male professional conductors. And as a, as a young Asian woman coming up in that field, relatively young, can you talk us through that experience? What was that like for you? So the current statistics, uh, at least a few years ago, they did a study to see that basically around the world, it's about 93 to 95% men conducting in professional, with professional orchestras and opera houses. Some countries it's worse. Sometimes it's almost 97%. Some places are slightly better, 90%, but pretty mm. much you're in the 90s and it's a long way to go. And I was very highly aware of that when I got started, you know, after apart from the fact that I didn't even consider it as a career. And once I did, I was like, where are all the role models, you know? And I started researching and I started uh, noticing there were, there were a few. And so I basically came to Europe and I hunted them down, you know, whenever <laughs> like Marinelle Sov, Shen Zhang, um, Sean Edwards in the UK. And, uh, and I went to them and the first question I asked them wasn't usually like, how do you, you know, how do you conduct? It's like, how do you manage a career and raising a family, you know, because that I remember when I started conducting, I was 19 years old. I've always wanted a family. And I remember having a nightmare that I was pregnant with my second child. Wasn't even because I was out of wedlock or anything. It was just simply because I was like, oh, Shiza, that is my conducting career over. That is it, you know, and I just always thought I could never have a career and, and have a family because it's just such a demanding profession. Mm -hmm. And then I met my, you know, then boyfriend, but now husband in Melbourne. And, uh, and he just said to me, I'll, I'll stay home. I'll look after the kids. You don't have to choose. You can do both and we can do it together. And I basically cried my eyes out. And uh, so now he's my husband. You know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, uh, yeah. And I just think, I think for me, it's so important that, uh, you know, that for a lot of young women uh, looking mm. for careers that are very demanding, that is a big issue. And, you know, I think our society has a long way to go to, to support women to, to do whatever they want. You know, people say you can do whatever you want, but the reality is, you know, you've got to take care of so many things, but however, you know, it's, it's, it's something I'm always aware of, but I also think right now in my career, I feel so lucky that I'm a woman 
you know, I mean, apart from all the challenges that go with prejudice and, un, you know, unconscious bias and, you know, there's always that stuff that every woman would understand. Mm. But in some ways, I think I have access to things that perhaps a male conductor might not in the way I think about things, you know, because perhaps I'm, you know, experience what it's like to be marginalized. I can, you know, my, my capacity for compassion for people who come from the same background or, you know, even my ability to look at scores might be different. The way I approach being on the podium because I don't have, you know, I do have role models, but all my role models are so different that, you know, it's almost like people look at me and they go, oh, you don't look like the standard old white man, like, you know, from, yeah. from history. So it's kind of like they, they kind of don't know what to expect and therefore I've got to keep clean slate and to, to make my mark. And so in some ways, I think it's a really, it's an advantageous thing. And, you know, orchestras are actively looking for more women now. I feel so fortunate to be living in the time we're living now. And you get to be a trailblazer. Do you feel the pressure of being a role model to, to future generations? Do you feel like you have to do things to, to kind of encourage that next generation through? Well, I feel very fortunate that there have been a, a generation of women before me, you know, people like Simone Young, who basically, Australian female conductor, who's the first woman to conduct the Wagner's ring cycle, these epic, like, four to five hour long operas over a period of four to five days, you know. And she actually conducted this crazy piece while she was pregnant with her second child. Wow. I think she was eight months pregnant. And this is like really this hardcore German opera uh, by Richard Strauss. And she said, I hope this puts a stop to people to say we shouldn't hire women in case they get pregnant. She says, by the way, my paunch is still smaller than some of my male colleagues. (laughs) 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 I mean, look, she is a tough cookie and it's people like Marin Alsop, you know. So those are the people who are real trailblazers. You know, I, I did feel a lot of pressure growing up, but I think seeing people like Marin and Simone, they sort of broke the glass ceiling right. and I feel myself um I used to feel very much oh hold on that's my husband sorry it's Kenneth's turn to get the drinks in this week so I'm gonna let you know that you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at do more good pod or if you're a professional business person you can find us on LinkedIn too there's a website domoregood.uk packed full with episodes blog posts details of the team and a link to the newsletter for your VIP content Coming back, two pina coladas and a lager for me. You mentioned compassion and, and you know, you try to instill that in your, your leadership style and, and, you know, when you're leading the orchestra from your position. and But you've also talked about that as being kind of part of your life now and one of the principles that you kind of live by. Can you talk us a little bit more? about that, how, how that's become instilled in what you do as a profession, but also in your life? Absolutely. I think, I think if you work in the arts, I mean, the whole concept of creating art is about compassion, is stepping into someone else's shoes, right? If you watch a film, if you watch a play, if you listen to a piece of music, you're going inside the creator's mind so that someone, <clears throat> you know, an Asian woman in the 21st century could feel what it was like to be a Russian homosexual man in, in, you know, Tchaikovsky years and years ago, pouring his heart out because nobody could understand him. Mm. And when you listen to the music, you feel the raw emotion and you suddenly understand something, a life experience that you'd never be able to experience. And I think that is the power of music. And so therefore the act itself of creating art is a compassionate act. In order to be a great musician, you need that humility of letting go of your thoughts and stepping into someone and using that imagination to try and understand someone else. So for me, compassion is basically everything, every element of what I do. And once I study the score, and bring my whole life experience and humanity into it. You know, that's the reason why they say conductors don't get good until they're at least 50. Um, And you really have to wait until they get older because you need that. You need that life experience. But also it's possible to imagine what it's like, regardless of how old you are. But I I do. And then once you do the preparation, you step in front of the podium. Mm. You're in front of a group of people. You usually have very little time. So believe it or not, you know, sometimes in the UK, for example, I would be, I would have two days to work with an orchestra. So I'd meet them maybe on a Monday morning, rehearse for a few hours. Tuesday would do a sound check in the morning and then bam, afternoon. 
Tuesday afternoon would be concert. If you're lucky, you might have a week with them. So you like next week, for example, I'm doing a project, meet the orchestra on Tuesday, we perform on Friday. But that's pretty much the amount of time you get. And so you have to establish trust very quickly. And the only way you can do that is by being vulnerable, you know, and being open to all the energies in the room while still being grounded in yourself. Because, you know, you don't know what that energy is going to be like. Some people might be really cynical or some people have had a very terrible day. Somehow you have to hold everyone and hold that space so that something great can happen. And in order for that to happen, it requires a lot of preparation, not just preparing a score, but also everything I say, the way I listen, it's all part of it. Oh, and it's that balance, like you talked of there, the, the humility to understand other people's music, but you've also got to have the confidence there because you're basically creating art on the fly every time you perform. You've got to create a masterpiece. Painters have it easy. They get to play around, try, you know, draw it out, sketch it out, paint it, and then they get years to, to produce their masterpiece. You have to do that every time you stand up. And if you've got a tricky woodwind section, you don't necessarily have control of the paintbrush. You know, they could be they could be flicking around all over the place. So there's that confidence to to own it as well, that situation to really control it. Absolutely. You know, someone said once that the conductor makes no sound. We don't actually make a single sound. We are the silent musician. And yet we have to empower other people to create sound. And it's astounding the amount of influence and the amount that you can help or hinder an orchestra. If there's any kind of profession that can prove the existence of telekinesis or what's the word, uh, telepathy, I would say it's conducting or musicianship. It's just, it's something about that connection. And um, yeah, absolutely. I think of it also, it's kind of like when we watch a sports game and the coach, you're kind of like the coach, but you're playing the game with the team and you need to create a specific you know, game every single time. And of course, every single time there's going to be variance. The wind might be blowing a little bit. The lights might be too much. Somebody had too much for dinner. Somebody's read, read, you know, if they're playing an oboe instrument might be cracking. And, but however, you have the score that it's like this blueprint, like an architect having to build a house, but you have to build it every single time in real time. And the canvas upon which you paint is time. But that's also why I reckon the performing arts is so exciting. It's different, like you say, from painting because of the fact that the audience is also experiencing someone creating something from scratch every single time. And you just don't know what is going to happen. And, you know, Benjamin Zander once said, there is no great music making without risk taking. And I would much rather listen to a performance that is on the edge and, you know, it makes the audience go, oh, my God, that's a little bit too fast. Are they going to make it? Or, you know, oh, this, this bit, they, the whole conductor is just holding it back, holding it back, holding it back. That's what creates a fantastic live performance is that mm. you just don't know what's going to happen. And, and, you know, that what creates the suspense. Do you enjoy that risk? Do you love that? that I love it. I love it. I think I'm a little bit crazy because I really thrive under pressure. I'm the sort of person in, you know, like Grey's Anatomy. I'm Christina, <laughs> the one who's just like, yes, I get to, you know, operate. It, it's a bit nuts. Like I, I remember being, you know, high school exams, you know, and everyone else is like super stressed before we get our papers and I'm sitting there going, I can't wait. I can't wait. You know, I'm just a little bit crazy like that. But um, I do thrive under pressure and I, I find it brings out the best in me. Is it that kind of flow state that people talk about when you're almost at that pinnacle, as you describe it, I mean, and you, you describe it far better than I will, but you know, you're at that pinnacle, the highest moment, and then you're just there and it almost has in your mind a silence, clarity, and you can see and you can just deliver what you, is that, is that what it is? Can you describe what that's like? Yeah. yeah. The thing about a score is if you're conducting a piece of music, it's usually requires so much of you mentally, emotionally, physically, that there's just absolutely no space for any other thoughts. Mm. Now that doesn't mean you have, you don't have other thoughts, you know, obviously all the self-esteem issues I talk about, Oh, Oh man, I didn't conduct that very well. The challenge didn't come in. Oh, that, but there, I should have been more, you know, I should have given the horns a bit more notice there or all oh, the, the woodwinds are sounding a bit flat there. I better address that. Oh, there's this big section coming up. I've got to make sure that I time the climax, right. That I don't make the orchestra get louder too soon. All this stuff is buzzing through your head. Oh, what if they think I'm a woman and think I'm a, a crap conductor or, Oh, maybe, maybe I'm too young and they don't like my voice and my voice is too high. And I'm speaking too quickly. 
all these thoughts are happening and you know the conductor has to think in terms of the past present and future you're like dr strange you're operating on three different time zones because you have to think about what just happened in order to fix it what's happening right now because you have to listen to what they're doing and then you also have to because you're building the building work out the architecture you have to try and you know mold the music so that it will become a certain shape in the future so you're operating on these three different time zones and the best way when you're dealing with so much information is to find a center. I've been thinking a lot recently about the Chinese, ancient Chinese concept of Wu Wei, which is in the Tao Te Ching, the famous text written by Lao. Yeah, I know it well. And uh, it's a great piece, right? And, you know, he talks about Wu Wei as a non-doing, but it doesn't quite translate because it's not that you're not doing anything, it's that you're finding that perfect balance between wanting and letting go. And you're able to just almost allow things to happen so that you know you're almost like a witness to everything I mean people talk about that in the flow state when mm. they almost feel like they're not doing it when mm. they're hitting that golf thing you just mentioned golf that they not even it's not them doing the golf it's some kind of greater force and I think about it as, as this trust of all the study you've done all the rehearsal you've done and you just let that go and you just let it happen and you just focus on the next thing and this non-judgment I think is really important because you know what tends to happen in this perfectionist world is like oh that was terrible I and then you start grasping onto things and that's when your focus becomes dissipated and then you just have to let that go and just focus on the next thing focus on the next thing and slowly slowly through many years it becomes easier and easier. And, and then it gets easier to get into that mindset. And I often have this like pre-concert routine where I need at least an hour before the concert. I go into my dressing room and I do a couple of warm-ups, physical warm-ups. I do a lot of slow breathing and I do a lot of visualization, you know, often before rehearsal of just closing my eyes, focusing on my breath, finding, finding my center, finding my connection to the ground and just also visualizing the people in the orchestra and how much gratitude I have for them, for, for their humanity and the love that I feel for them and the love that I feel for the music and the gratitude I feel for the composer and, and the audience also. And I do a lot of visualization and to help me get into that zone. But ultimately, the more you try to get in that zone, the more you, it's not something you can force, yeah. but, it, but when it does happen and everyone, you feel not just you, but the whole stage everyone feels in that place it's um, it's the most incredible experience it sounds like a really intense experience like the performance night it, it, what you talk about there is is very intense but I, uh, for our audience that will also resonate for them on a, on a lower level around I don't know if we've got team leaders out there who are looking forward to the next campaign or project that they're working mm. on to allow the different sections of their team to go and do what they do best and to not I think you talked about it there, not meddling too much and not, not over-conducting and, you know, getting in on the detail, allowing them to do their thing, but, but guiding and pushing them in the right direction. I think there's, there's parallels there that we can take for our audience. Yeah, I'd like to actually maybe mention about these parallels because I see so many parallels. The interesting thing about the conductor is like a CEO, but you're, you're making the work with everyone in real time. You know, whereas, you know, usually in an organization, if you're managing, you let people get on with it and then you catch up or you have meetings. But I was thinking, you know, if people can hold meetings like they hold a rehearsal, because I think of rehearsals not as performances as well. So when I hold a meeting, for example, first of all, I have to acknowledge everyone's energies. And this is what I did in the Zoom meeting the other day when I gave this talk to a group of people is Zoom is such a strange thing. You know, everyone's got their cups of teas and their cat in the background or their children running around doing homeschooling. And to be really present with the people, it's really difficult when you're not physically present. But in a rehearsal room, everyone needs to bring their vulnerabilities and their ideas and their strengths and weaknesses and bring the whole of them there has to be so much trust because to create art together you have to trust each other and your presence is the most precious gift that you can give anyone and so when everyone is present that's when real work can happen and it's but it's very very intense and therefore you know I try not to work too many hours I try to be very efficient like I said sometimes I only have two hours to rehearse a one hour piece you know I try not to talk too much to really listen, not, not just listen to get your words out, 
but to really, really try and get into the minds and the hearts of what the performers are doing. And ultimately, you're constantly making a choice. Do I, do I say something? Do I not? Do I say something? Do I not? And as a conductor, you try not to talk too much. Can I let that go? Can I just use my physical gesture to change it? Oh, that bit there, they're a little bit slow. I'm just going to move them along by showing a particular airy gesture or the horns came in too loud and I'm just going to show them, a, you know, so that you're sort of working on the fly very much, sort of like a piece of clay, you're molding it on the fly. And maybe you might mention it, but then you realise if you mention it, that's going to make that horn player feel totally crap about themselves. So I'm not going to talk about it. I might talk about it during the breaks personally one-on-one or that person there is actually feeling pretty confident I can tell them right away in front of everybody all these decisions are conductors making all the time but ultimately you have to tailor it to the people you're working with and every single player in an orchestra is different but how do you tell how how can you you know I've only got two days or four days with them that therefore that requires compassion and requires listening wow taking that into my team meeting on Monday (laughs) (laughs) just there's so many parallels as you say between kind of leadership and how we all conduct ourselves in the workplace in our lives and at home uh, and, and you know you sit there and, and talk so eloquently about it what, what what do you do I think we touched on it in your intro is there uh, what are you doing around outreach you, you're doing some work in that area to try and kind of bring people along with these principles that you've been sharing can you talk to us a little bit more about some of that yeah so I don't know if you've ever been to a professional orchestral concert, but usually the lights go down. Everyone's wearing tuxedos, super formal. You don't know whether you're allowed to eat or not, probably not. Um, and, uh, and suddenly the conductor walks on stage and the orchestra stands up and it's, he takes a bow and they all start playing and that's it. And all the information you have is pretty much printed in undecipherable formal language on your program. I mean, things are slowly changing, but I feel like there is that image of elitism. There is that image of only educated people or or certain people of a certain class or a certain financial background could access classical music, which is so not true. You know, I think, Mm. you know, part of my mission is to break that down because I truly believe that all art should be for all people because we are human beings. You know, we all experience Beethoven had to go to the toilet. Like, you know, Mozart had to, you know, I mean, come on, we're all humans, right? We all experience similar things. And back then it wasn't classical music. It was pop music. You know, when Mozart was writing stuff, it was the latest hit, you know? So I think we forget that sometimes. So I truly, I believe that if people feel open and welcome and included, then great things can happen. And if we exclude and judge, then we lose out. So I do a lot of education programs. Every concert that I conduct, if I'm allowed to, I try and speak to the audience. I say, hi, everyone. You know, and everyone's like, what? The conductor's talking to me. But then, you know, for someone who's never been to a classical music concert, they're like, yeah, I'm with you for the rest of the concert. Like I'm, yeah. I, I, I suddenly feel that personal connection. Um, I also try and speak a little bit about, about, about the music. So, you know, someone's like, oh, Rachmaninoff, who, who was he? And I talk a little bit about the fact that he had these huge hands that could stretch more than an octave. And that's why he wrote these epic piano pieces that like are, you know, huge chords because he had these giant hands or you know, little things like that, that that help the audience get into it. And I talk a lot on, on media and stuff. And I do, I try also, I love working with kids. There's a lot of educational programs where kids come in, we hire in a puppet or we, or we, we, we tell a story or something to, to bring it alive. But I, ultimately, I also think classical music, we don't have to put all the bells and whistles. So much of it speaks for itself. If people have access to it and they listen with open ears, there's just unlimited possibilities. Mm. Classical music hasn't really been a part of my repertoire but you know after we spoke and and I actually you know I go out on dog walks most days and I've been actually listening to more of it and like because of the way that you explained it and you explained about the different beats coming in at different times and actually from that conversation you know I'm now more interested because I understand I don't understand it but I understand some of those small principles that that I took from the conversation I think that's that's really important and we should have more of that and maybe that will allow more people to to get the enjoyment out of it that obviously you and and millions of people do so yeah thank you for that I want to hear the recording of your next loom video 
when you're performing <laughs> Rachmaninoff to your team. That would be amazing. <laughs> a massive hand. Yeah. Uh, how about the future? So you've had a, you've had a year to, as you would say, maybe listen and evaluate what you want to do when you start. When things start going back and you get your jet set lifestyle back and you're flying to Melbourne for 24 hours and flying back, what do you what do you hope to achieve over the next I don't know year five years? Where do you want to get stuck back in? Well, I'm sort of formulating that at the moment. So I'm just sort of educating myself because there's a lot of stuff that's happened in the last year, you know, to do with, um, for example, Black Lives Matter and, 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 you know, also the environment. And I think that's something, that's also one of the reasons why I moved to the Netherlands is so I could fly a little bit less because gosh, like the amount of carbon that I was chewing up flying so much. And this is the life of a, of a professional conductor. You know, that is the reality is that we are in a different city every week. So I hope to travel by train much more. And it's been so much easier basing myself here where there are a bit more orchestras, but ultimately I just, I just want to make a small difference. You know, I don't have great ambitions to conduct the biggest orchestras and the most famous ones in the world. I just want to, every single time I do a project, to move the people that I'm working with, to provide an alternative way of working. When I talked about this kind of compassionate leadership, because I see the transformation. And ultimately, I just want to bring more people to understand and to kind of come into this world of music because it helps us connect with ourselves. And I feel like there's going to be a really great thirst after such a long time of not being able to experience live music, not being able to gather together to listen, to appreciate something for the sake of being together, that I'm really excited about the potential after the pandemic for people to meet and to really, you know, find something more than just the, hey, you know, everyday rush of life. I feel like that's one of the things that potentially classical music can really bring you know, we're so busy all the time and we're running around from Zoom meeting to Zoom meeting. And when we listen to a piece of Bruckner, suddenly time stops. Or Mahler, where he, had the whole, he contains the whole world in a symphony. Uh, the Resurrection Symphony, maybe I, I, I'd like to finish by just mentioning this piece that changed my life when I was 17 years old. And I mentioned it recently to my mother because uh, my grandmother died on Monday. And she lived, a, well, she was 87. And, you know, when I was 17 years old, I heard this piece by Mahler called The Resurrection Symphony. And it's this huge epic piece about more than an hour long with full symphony orchestra and full chorus, about more than 100 people on stage. And you hear this, like, epic, the whole, entire life full of the dramas of pain and sorrow and doubt and hope. For 45 minutes, just the orchestra plays. And then suddenly the silence and the choir starts singing and you have a hundred voices singing softly, hushed, oh, oh, which means arise in German. And the choir just gets more and more louder, singing about the fact that one day, you know, my soul will not be turned away. All the pain that I've suffered, all the kind of, it's not for vain. It's not in vain. I will not be turned away. I am from light. I am from God. I will return to God. Now, whatever religion you believe in, you cannot listen to that without a tearing up. And I, I just heard this incredible uh, celebration of the power of the human spirit, despite all the sorrow and the suffering that we've been through. And Mala had seven out of, uh, I think about seven out of his 10 siblings died before the age of 10. And, and he, he was so close to death. The whole, he understood death. And he struggled with his faith because he saw so much suffering in this world. And you hear it all in this music. But then ultimately, it's this glory, like this, this music just lifts you at the end. And, and um, just as you don't think it could get any louder, he changes the key and it gets even more intense. And in those moments, I just think if music is something so abstract it's just airwaves moving, you know, and it can affect me emotionally in this way to have hope that despite being locked in my house for months on end, having no work, no human interaction, not being able to hug my parents, not being able to see my, not being able to go to my grandmother's funeral, that there is hope. And there is someone who understands what it feels like to arise again, to, to, you know, pick yourself up 
and to keep going despite all the odds. For me, reading a poem, that, that does it, but, but the music is a direct hit to the body and the soul. So, you know, that's all I want basically is for mm. people to be able to experience that and to take that strength by listening to another piece of art. Wow. Well, I've, I've taken a note of that. I'm going to give that a listen. It sounds like the most amazing piece. And you listened to that first when you were 17, did you say? That was kind of a pivotal moment for you. Yeah, I was 17 and I was struggling with it to make music a career because, you know, it's such an unpredictable career yeah. working in the arts. And my parents were, you know, questioning me and uh, it, was, it was difficult. But when I heard that symphony, I was just bawling my eyes out. And I knew wow. if I didn't do it, I'd regret it for the rest of my life. That's amazing. Oh. That's a, per- a really perfect note, I think. But you've got to see it live. It's, it's the same, like, like I was saying to you, after, after meeting you the first time, I was like, right, I'm going to start listening to a bit more classical music because there's, there's something special here and putting it into my life a little bit more. And after speaking to you this time, I want to go and see a live orchestra. I've never kind of been. Have you ever been, James? On a small scale, yeah. I've seen bits and bobs here and there, yeah. And probably well, when I was too this? young to really to really appreciate it as well. Like my parents would have taken me and expected me to have that that moment when you were 17, you know. And, 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 yeah, and... Uh, my musical career floundered at the um, on the stage at that <laughs> Raining Men. Well, how about this? When I it's on my bucket list to conduct Mahler too. I haven't yet done it, but the day I do, I will uh, make sure you guys know and see if we can get your tickets there. Oh, yeah, that would be incredible. that would be amazing. Because I was going to say the way that you talk about it and that passion, we've had ending statements in the past on this show. I don't think anything has and will ever top what you just gave us in that last couple of minutes there. But yeah, I'm really into. I'm going to come and see you for sure. Kenneth and I are going to be booking a train to come and to come and see you. Sure. Yeah, that was brilliant. Tiani, we're not going to let you go quite yet there. We've got some quick fire questions that we're just chucking at the oh. end of our podcast. So there's okay. nothing that's going to be too too testing here, but it'd be interesting to hear your answers. So first one, if you if you could transport yourself back in time and meet your 20 year old self what piece of advice would you give and why that's a really good question it's funny I did that exercise often um, imagining a future self thinking back to to myself now Mm. probably the piece of advice I would give to myself is um, to trust yourself more Hmm. you have everything you need yeah is within you and you don't need external validation and nurture nurture yourself nice yeah because it's such a key moment isn't it at at, at that kind of age I mean there was something specific around kind of 20 when you get through a bit of education you're becoming a more established adult and it's a real key moment where I think nurture and trust yourself is a, is a great message so and you know I also would, would say to myself definitely there's no such thing as a wrong decision mm. because I remember you know when you said about like why did you choose Wales well I had like a spreadsheet of like about 10 different cities and pros cons is expensive <laughs> what like are the teachers good what what does the program offer because I had no I was in New Zealand like I had no idea I didn't have the money to go there to visit yeah. I just had to make a decision and apply. I remember applying to all these places. I mean, no idea what it's going to be like, you know, but I truly believe it doesn't really matter that if you have an inner compass, focus on that. And ultimately it will lead you to where you need to be hmm. and try different doors, walk down every single door. There's no door that's going to be wrong. If you have your inner compass. I remember agonizing a lot when I was in my, you know, oh, what if I make a wrong the decision? Pressure to oh. make, yeah, the pressure to make the right decision, right? But Absolutely. What, how, do you, how do you know what the right decision is? Well, you don't, except that I had a friend who once told me something, a really great piece of advice. Whenever you have a decision to make, ask yourself, am I making this decision out of fear or out of love? And if you make the decision out of love, it's never going to be a bad decision. Even if it is, you learn something from it. But ultimately ask yourself, is, am I doing this because of fear or am I doing this because of love? It's, I found that to be really powerful in a compass. Nice. Go on then, James, question number two. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go off on a bit of a solo on this second question. I'm going to change it up from what we've had in the past. All right? You're going to just have to allow me to do that because we're in front of the well, audience. Well, I don't know what the questions are in the past. I'm, I'm looking more at Kenneth, my conductor, whether, whether that's allowed. Um, so if you were having a tough day, 
what who is the one person you would call or maybe listen to for inspiration well i mean i i definitely um call call my husband of course but uh in terms of finding my my own inner compass again i would definitely you know listen to insight time as sarah blondin um the meditation teacher that i mentioned earlier but there's so many pieces of music i also turn to for example schindler's list you know, the soundtrack that John Williams wrote, the same mm. composer who wrote Star Wars, mm. and this incredible Ishart Perlman, the violinist, just so much sorrow. And that always, always helps me, you know, whatever situation, however teenage angst I'm feeling, you know, I, I remember <laughs> listening to a lot of Schindler's List. I do have a playlist of pieces that I turn to when I'm, when I'm feeling down that nice. lift me up again. Nice. Okay, final one before we let you go. I can hear the microwave dinging in the background. It looks like dinner was, dinner was ready or, or your husband was, was hungry when he came in from surfing. So he was like... Quick. Probably the latter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you hope it is, right? I you doubt hope you're not... <laughs> dinner's ready. <laughs> um, okay, so the last one. So as a podcast that focuses around people doing more good, what's your favourite story or inspiring individual that you've met on your journey who has done something good for others? Hmm... Wow, so many. Wow, that's a really that's a really good question actually. I I've had so many incredible mentors and teachers who have just gone above and beyond. Mm. You know, our teachers. Mm. All my teachers. And the sacrifices they make. My husband is a teacher, he's a primary school teacher. I think teachers are often underpaid, undervalued, but education you know I just that's the future for me it's education and it's the ability to take your own ego out the people you know the teachers that I've had who well let's just give one example John Hopkins was a teacher in Melbourne 87 year old man been through all kinds of stuff he used to every week we would conduct in front of him and we would record ourselves. And then we'd go to his house for pumpkin soup every Saturday. He always cook us some soup and we'd go for what he would call confession <laughs> where, we, where, where we would look at the videos and we would uh, bemoan about how terrible our conducting is in front of him. You know, he wouldn't say anything. He just let us sort of talk about how bad it was and then give us advice. And then after all that harrowing, you know, self-depreciation, he would then give us soup. Um, and he was 87 he cooked the best ham hock soup like it, it was incredible and I, I he ended up being my last um well I was one of his last students because he passed away when I left um to go to the to go to Wales and I still remember what he said to me you know conducting is about humility you know a, a great musician a great leader the most important quality is humility you are a servant to the music and the musicians you're not there to glorify yourself. And if you're there and feeling nervous, it's a sign of your ego getting in the way. Mm-hmm. Forget about yourself. You're there to help create a great performance. You're there to help others. And then the ego will disappear. And I think this is something that I'm still learning. But what I'm realizing is that the idea of doing good isn't about ticking a box or about oh, I'm a good person, this is what I do, and I feel good doing it. I mean, we all get a kick out of doing good and giving others, but ultimately it's actually about acknowledging our own humanity and ultimately it's actually healing ourselves. And so therefore when we're doing good, it's not because we're good, it's because it's our nature. And when we deny ourselves the capacity for good, then we are the ones that suffer. As I'm sort of learning to see it like that slowly, but it's a life lesson that I'm still learning. Amazing. Well, you've certainly done good for us, Tiani, and, and thank you for your, your time, your, your inspiring words, you know, your compassion. We wish you all the luck in the world with whatever comes for the rest of 2021. It sounds like you're getting a bit more of a busy schedule. Hopefully the world's opening up. Hopefully there's some, some more opportunities for you to conduct across the world and yeah james and i will certainly try and be be there whenever you come to london we'll keep an eye on your website we're going to register for your alerts to keep a track on that and it would be great to meet you in person at one day but we just want to say yeah thank you so much for, for your time it's been a privilege honestly 
Well, thank you so much for your time and the work you do. It's been a privilege to to speak with you and spend a bit of time with you both. Yeah, perfect. James, any final thoughts? I mean, how do you how do you follow that? You've really, you know, thrown me up there in front of the audience there. But um, if I had a if I had a brilliant episode sticker, you would get that now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm all for stickers. Yeah. All about the oh, stickers. All about yeah. the stickers. Great all right, stuff. Tiani, James, we'll see you soon. Thank you for listening, and yeah, take care, everybody. Thanks, Thanks guys. Thank you. Take care. Just before we go, can we ask a favour? If you've enjoyed this episode and you've made it this far after all and you want to help us reach more people and attract more guests, then we'd love a review on iTunes. Alternatively, if you haven't got anything nice to say, then say it in an email. Get in touch at contact at domoregood.uk and let us know how we can improve the show. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with another story of someone doing more good.